Our scripture reading today is from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, to chapter 15, verse 7. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hepher. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and, and his might, how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And the Lord touched the king, so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, church. Glad to be here with you this morning. Um, If you're a visitor, uh, just know that you're welcome here. We're we're glad to have you uh, join us in worship. And uh, please consider getting plugged in in with us on a deeper level as well. We'd love to be your church family, uh, support you during your time here on Okinawa, and just work together for the flourishing of the body of Christ. Um, You know, this morning, uh, I just want to begin by praying for the nation of Israel. Uh, I'm sure we're all aware of how crazy things have been uh, in that region of the world, how things have shifted significantly geopolitically uh, since last week. Um, I'm sure we've all seen the atrocities that have happened from from the terrorist group Hamas uh, directed toward the nation of Israel. So I just want to pray for them. for those grieving souls over there. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you this morning and uh, we humble ourselves before you. God, our perspective is limited. Um, We do not know how to uh, really interpret the events of the world. We don't know what's gonna happen, God, Uh, but we know that you are a God of all wisdom, that you are a God who is good, And Lord, we 
place our trust in you, God. Help us to place our trust in you um, as the world around us seems to be uh, descending into violence, Lord. Father, we lift up uh, the country of Israel, God, and we ask that you would make yourself known to them uh, as a comfort and a refuge, God. Lord, we ask that you would reunite broken families, that you would protect innocent lives, uh, that you would just be a shield to the weak and the innocent uh, in that part of the world, God. Um, Lord, thank you that you are a good and righteous judge. And Lord, we ask uh, that you would haste the day when you return to judge this world in your righteousness Uh, the day when the knowledge of you will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God, would you please comfort those who are grieving in a way that only you can? Uh, Would you be at work to point the nation of Israel and point the world to the hope that we have in you? We love you, Father. Uh, We rest in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... uh, Got to do a little bit of recap from last week because we've hit the fast forward button a little bit since last week. If you all remember, uh, of course, we're talking about kings and in the book of Kings, we see the split of the kingdom, the division of the kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So we got a little map for you. Israel to the north in the green and Judah to the south in the gray. Uh, So we've been tracking the progress of two dynasties, two lines of kings. Um, Last week we talked about Jehu, the king of Israel, how he took over, how God anointed him as king, how he wiped out Baal worship from Israel, how God used him as an instrument of his judgment against this uh, pagan cult, how God asserted his superiority over the idol worship and idol worship of Baal through this man. Now, from the time of Jehu, from Jehu's rule to the king that we're talking about this morning, Jeroboam II, um, a bit of time has elapsed. Jeroboam II is Jehu's grandson. And that time between Jehu and Jeroboam is marked by a lot of conflict, a lot of battles between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, a lot of battles with nations uh, from the outside. And Israel at this point has taken a lot of losses. They've lost a lot of battles. Uh, Their territory has shriveled up and they are very weak until the rule of Jeroboam. It's a pretty similar story for the kingdom of Judah in the south. Uh, After Jehu takes over, A man named Jehoash becomes king in Judah. Uh, He kind of rescues the line of David from going extinct. And from the time of Jehoash to the time of his grandson, Azariah, the picture is basically the same. Uh, A lot of losses, a lot of conflict, a lot of battles. And um, it's not until the time of Azariah, the second king we're talking about this morning, Uh, It's not until this time that the nation of Judah is brought into uh, restoration. Like Israel, they were shriveling up, losing a lot of territory, losing a lot of ground. So things have been crazy for these two nations up until this point. 
But now we get to two kings who enjoy peace, prosperity, and very long reigns. So Jeroboam, king in the north, he rules for 41 years. And Azariah, the king in the south, rules for 52 years. So long time, uh, very successful rules, a lot of stability associated uh, with those long uh, reigns, those long times in um, authority. They were really successful. They restored the borders of their countries. But here's the thing. Their success was not an indication that they were righteous. It was not an indication that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It was not an indication of God's pleasure or his favor on their lives. So really, we have two kings. What we'll see is that we have two kings that let pride dictate their actions. Because these two kings failed to understand the character of God, because they didn't understand what it meant when we say that God is full of compassion, because of this, they let pride rule in their lives. They did not know the compassion of the Lord. They did not know the character of the Lord. They failed to understand that circumstances did not equal God's favor. Circumstances are not the ultimate evidence of God's favor on your life. Material wealth, success, they do not, these things do not indicate, they did not indicate that they were doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that's an easy trap to fall into, but it is entirely wrong. Just think about it. When things are going really well for us, skies are blue, uh, finances look good, family's happy, it's so easy for us to look at our nice circumstances and our success and whatever it is that we're pursuing and think to ourselves, well, that, that's how I really know that God loves me. All right, that's how I know God's favor. These kings were wrong to interpret God's favor by their circumstances. And we're wrong to do the same thing. Uh, look with me at Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Here, Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? According to Paul here, in order to not abuse the grace of God, we need to recognize God's kindness, and we need to respond to God's kindness. These two kings failed to recognize and respond to the kindness, to the compassion of the Lord. So really, they just acted like fools and let uh, pride dictate their lives. Now, I don't always try to come up with sermon titles because that requires a lot of creativity that I don't have. Um, but today, for this sermon, I thought I was, I, I definitely thought I was going to 
nail a sermon title. It didn't really turn out that way. Um, but here's my line of thinking. We have two kings, right? Two kings. So automatically my mind jumps to um, that Charles Dickens novel, Tale of Two Cities. So I got like the first part of my title right there. A Tale of Two, a tale of two Kings. But if I leave it at A Tale of Two Kings, it's not really describing anything. It's not describing what these kings were like. Um, so I tried to come up with a word that describes someone who is foolish and arrogant. And I had a hard time with that. So maybe you all can help me. What do you call someone who is foolish and arrogant and it's appropriate for church? <laughs> what is a term for someone like that? What was that? Me? <laughs> okay, all right. I was going to say man in general. Yep, mankind, humanity. Yep, haughty, yeah. Tale of two haughty guys. Doesn't, doesn't really flow. Uh, I thought of like, okay, tale of two fools. Well, that sounds very boring and unoriginal. Tale of two jerks, also very boring and unoriginal. So I think like a lot of people, I just Googled, what are some synonyms for jerk? I came across a couple that I think are okay. Um, the first was clown, a tale of two clowns. But I didn't want to go with that because clowns are weird. I don't, know who, I don't know who came up with the idea of clowns. Whoever that person was, who's probably a psychopath. Um, you know, let's find an alcoholic, put a bunch of makeup on him, and release him among the kids. That sounds like a terrible idea. I also saw a meathead as an option. Tale of two meatheads. But there's a couple problems with that because number one, I don't, e I don't know if these two kings worked out even. I, I don't know if they were jacked. Uh, maybe I bench press more than they do, so that's not, that, can't, that can't work. Plus it hits too close to home. Because when I think about a meathead, I think about someone who places too much of their self-worth into working out and has very little to show for it, uh, which is too much like me. So I don't like it, not going with that. And then I saw the word Muppet. Um, now that's English slang, so you gotta say it with a British accent. Muppet. Um, but I like that, I'm going with it because Muppet communicates, number one, foolishness, and number two, that this person is easily manipulated. Easily manipulated. And these two kings, what we see is their hearts were easily manipulated by the success that they experienced. Their hearts were easily manipulated by their circumstances. Right? Just like we read in Romans chapter 2, the problem with these kings and the problem with us is that we need to recognize and respond to the compassion of the Lord. In order that we do not presume upon the grace of God, we must recognize and respond to God's compassion. And here we get to our main idea this morning. 
Main idea of the text. Repent and rest in the Lord, for he is full of compassion. We have three points that arise from the text. The Lord is full of compassion. One, despite arrogance. Two, even through affliction. And three, because he is faithful. And just glancing at these major sub-points here, we see something very, very important about the compassion of the Lord. And that is that it is stable and steady. Human arrogance doesn't affect the compassion of the Lord. Affliction does not affect God's compassion. Why? Because he is faithful. He is faithful to who he is. God's compassion is stable and steady. It is a foundation that cannot be shaken. His compassion is a fortress that cannot be broken. It is a shield that will defend us from the attacks of the enemy. Therefore, we can repent wholeheartedly. Knowing that the Lord is full of compassion, therefore we can find rest in his presence. All right, let's jump into point number one. The Lord is full of compassion despite human arrogance. What we see in 2 Kings 14 verses 24 through 25, we get a description of Jeroboam. We see two things about him. One, that he was evil. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And two, that he restored the borders of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. That means nothing to us because we don't know where these places are. So um, little map for you here. Here we have, uh, in the green, we have the territory of Israel before the time of Jeroboam. And that striped green area that goes up into Syria, that is where Jeroboam restored the borders of Israel to. So almost doubles in size. You see, the thing is, Israel's territory had not been this large since the rule of Solomon. So God really does like an incredible thing here through Jeroboam. It's it's like a complete reversal. Their territory was being chipped away at. They were being attacked from Judah, by Judah from the south, uh, from their enemies around them, and their territory was slowly shrinking. They were about to crumble as a nation, but God sends Jeroboam to restore them, to deliver them, to restore their land. And that's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe it seems out of place because Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But the thing about God is he is not limited. He is not limited. He can use evil people to bless his own people to accomplish his will. He is not limited by human error or by human limitations. The word of the Lord stands. He said that Israel shall not be blotted out of his book from off the earth. So he restored them by the hand of Jeroboam. 
Verse 27 says that God saved Israel by the hand of Jeroboam. So Israel was restored, their fortunes were reversed, and they prospered. They prospered an incredible amount. They became very wealthy as a nation during this time. Uh, Biblical scholars liken this period in Israel and Judah to a second golden age, experiencing a ton of wealth. So things were going well for them. But what the Israelites failed to understand is that this was a reflection of God's pity, not of his favor. He was not commending their behavior. He was showing compassion on them. And what is so sad about this is that Israel abused the grace of God. They abused the compassion of the Lord. Instead of turning to the Lord, instead of repenting, they doubled down on their idolatry and their immorality. Um, You all know the book of Hosea in the Bible, or you at least know that it is a book in the Bible, right? Hosea is a book in the Bible. It's written by the prophet Hosea, written during this time, during the time of Jeroboam and Azariah. And it is an indictment against the people of Israel and Judah for their idolatry, for their rampant idolatry. And what God likens their idolatry to, what, what's the word that's repeated over and over again in the book of Hosea is the word whoredom. Idolatry is covenant infidelity. It is disgusting like whoredom is disgusting. You got to think about it. These people were on the brink of destruction. There was none left, bond or free. No one left to save them. So God intervenes. He uses Jeroboam to save them. Not just save them, but restore them and make them prosper. And he blesses them. And then what do they do in response? They whore after other gods. They multiply bloodshed. They shed innocent blood. And they run after immorality. They misunderstood the compassion of God for his commendation. They mistook his pity for his favor. Church, in an all too similar way, God has saved us from the brink of destruction. There was none left to help, no one left to save us. We could not save ourselves. There was nowhere else for us to turn. Yet God intervened and saved us through the blood of his precious son. You know, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Wages, it's what we've earned for ourselves. So just like you go out in the morning and and work a hard day's work, and you expect at the end of that day that you deserve something and you've earned something, we can know that our sin and rebellion against God has earned for us nothing other than death. But because God is rich in mercy, but because he is full of compassion, he has delivered us and restored us through the blood of his son. 
Even though we have broken all God's commandments, even though we are still inclined towards all kinds of evil, God, out of sheer grace, grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. So that now God looks upon us in our miserable estate. He looks upon us as if we have never sinned nor ever been sinners. As if we have been as obedient as Jesus Christ was obedient for us. I mean, talk about a reversal of fortunes. All because the Lord is full of compassion. Church, unlike the Israelites, let us respond to the salvation that God has provided. Let us repent and rest in the Lord because of the compassion that he has shown to us in the gospel. And this brings us to point number two. God is full of compassion even through affliction. Now, if the northern kingdom of Israel misunderstood God's compassion for his commendation, then the southern kingdom of Israel failed to understand the, the reach, the extent of God's compassion. They failed to understand that God's compassion was present even in hardship and affliction. You see, like Israel, Judah was experiencing a great deal of prosperity, a great deal of success. And so like Israel's king, Judah's king let his success and his circumstances manipulate his heart. He was a Muppet. He failed to recognize and respond to the compassion of the Lord. And for Israel and Israel's king, this failure, this focus on success and circumstances, it led to idolatry and immorality. But for Judah's king and for Judah, this pride led to a different kind of sin, the sin of self-righteousness. So in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, we see that the Lord touched the king. This is King Azariah, the king of the south. The Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. Now, uh, the author of Kings doesn't give us a ton of details. His narrative is very terse. But in the book of Chronicles, in Chronicles chapter 26, these couple of verses turns into a whole chapter. So the account in the book of Kings is like when your husband's talking to you about the events of his day. It's very terse, not a lot of detail. In the book of Chronicles, we get a lot more detail. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Second Chronicles 26, starting in verse 16. And before I start reading, um, we need to understand that the king's name is both Azariah and Uzziah. So these two names refer to the same person. So in Chronicles, he's called Uzziah. In Kings, he's called Azariah. 
All right, verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood the king, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. Then Uzziah was angry. Now, he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. You see, Uzziah's heart was manipulated by his success and his circumstances. So he became self-righteous. He thought he could approach the Lord however he wanted. He thought he could worship God on his own terms. Worship him in a way that he had defined. Something that he had chosen for himself. This is pride. It's self-righteousness, and this manifests itself in all kinds of subtle ways in the church. Now, one of the ways that I, I see it most often in modern Christianity is in the idea that people can pick and choose what parts of the Bible matter more than others. Like, what parts of the Bible we're going to obey or say these parts are really important? Right? As if we can define the truth as if we can tell the author of truth what really matters, what's really applicable. And, you know, we see this play itself out, of course, when uh, people try to make excuses for any kind of immorality, any kind of sexual immorality or whatever it is. But we also see this play out in a more subtle way in the church. And that's when we elevate our preferences to the status of Scripture. I don't know about all your experiences, but I can tell you that I've been around Christian communities or churches that uh, either explicitly or, or implicitly communicate that the gospel is not as important as your politics. Or the gospel is not as important as how you present yourself, how put together you look. The gospel's not as important as your behavior. You know, you, no drinking, no smoking, none of that. No R movies, no Harry Potter. When we elevate our preferences, whatever they are, even if they're good things, even if they're wise things, when we elevate our preferences to the level of God's authority, we are being self-righteous. But praise God that he sent his son and anointed him king, not only to save us from the sin of immorality and idolatry, but also from the sin of self-righteousness. Think with me 
about how different our King Jesus is from Uzziah. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, tells us that Jesus did not exalt himself to the position of high priest. He let God put him in that position. He was anointed high priest. He did not take that right for himself, even though he was the son of God. Jesus did the exact opposite of what Uzziah tried to do. He did not exalt himself. Jesus instead obeyed God. He submitted to God's will and to God's order. And because of his obedience, Hebrews tells us that Jesus has become the high priest of a superior order. He has become the high priest who gives us perfect access to the throne of grace. The sad thing about Uzziah is that it was the kindness of the Lord to afflict him with this disease. In Hosea, Hosea 6.1 tells us that God has struck us so that he may bind us up. He has afflicted us so that he may heal us. God did this so that Uzziah would repent. The sad thing is he failed to understand God's compassion in this act. Church, may we not be like Uzziah. Instead, let us repent and rest in the Lord because he is full of compassion. And this brings us to our final point this morning. God is full of compassion because he is faithful. So turning back to 2 Kings, in chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, we see that God raised up Jeroboam as a deliverer to save his people. God did the same thing with Uzziah. That's what 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells us. So God raised up these two deficient kings, these two imperfect, inadequate, sinful kings to rescue his people. Now, why did he do it? We're told explicitly, we're given the explicit theological explanation in verses 26 through 27. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, bitter, for there was none left to help, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. The point that the author is making here is that as firm and enduring as the authority of God's word is, so is his compassion. It will stand. It will endure forever. Just like the authority of God's word cannot be broken, so God's compassion will not change. It will endure forever. Now we're missing out on a little something here because we're not, we're not native Hebrews. 
every Hebrew that read this text would have immediately thought back to something really important in their history. They would have thought back to the book of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 tell us this. You can see it up on the screen. Here God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay, this point is reiterated in chapter 4, verse 31. On the screen again. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So, in the Exodus, God sees the affliction of his people. He saw the affliction of his people, so he comes to them to deliver them. He visits them so that he can save them by the hand of Moses. Right, that's what happened in the Exodus. Now, just like in the Exodus, we see in 2 Kings 14 that God saw the affliction of his people and came down. He visited his people to save them by the hand of Jeroboam. Right, same is true for King Uzziah. God saw the affliction of his people, he visited them, and he delivered them by the hand of this king. The point is that the same God who was faithful to show compassion to his people at the Exodus is the same God who showed compassion to his people in the book of Kings, right here in chapters 14 and 15. And that same God who was faithful to show compassion to his people in Egypt at the Exodus is the same God who shows compassion to us today. In the same way, God sees our affliction now. He has seen us today at what the Bible calls the end of the age. In these last days... God has seen our affliction, but instead of sending a deficient king to come and deliver us, he has come to deliver us by his own hand, by his very own hand. Look with me at Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Here we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, 
and they will not leave one stone upon, uh, upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Just like God did in, in the Exodus, Jesus saw his people, he saw Jerusalem, he was filled with compassion for his people, he wept over Jerusalem. Just like God did in the Exodus, he came to visit his people when he saw their affliction. We see that Jesus tells the people of Israel that they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not understand that God was visiting them in the person of Jesus Christ. So the point of Luke here is not just to show us that Jesus' compassion is like the compassion of God, that he has the same kind of compassion as Yahweh did for his people, No, his point is to say that the same God has come to save his people. He shows us that Jesus is this God who is full of compassion. Just like Yahweh had come down to save his people from Egypt, he came down in Christ to save them by his own hand. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that Now, today is the time of visitation. God has seen our affliction and being filled with compassion. He has visited us. He has come down to save us in Jesus Christ. Praise God that he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is full of compassion. That will not change. Therefore, we can repent and rest in the Lord, knowing that in his presence, we will always be met with mercy, with love, with his unending compassion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for doing for us what we never could have hoped to do for ourselves. God, thank you for being merciful towards us. God, thank you that you love us, that you uh, are filled with warmth and compassion towards us. Lord, we are undeserving of your affection. We are undeserving of your kindness. Yet you freely bestow it upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that would soften our hearts so that we would turn to you wholeheartedly. God, I ask that you would bless our congregation. God, bless your people. Help us to walk in trust and obedience uh, to you, to who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.